What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope you enjoyed listening to Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 on Luminary. Now continuing with our 99 theme, I wanted to let you guys know we've got all new episodes of The Rewatchables 1999 starting back up right now. Since we've returned, we have rewatched Eyes Wide Shut and Election, and up next is Never Been Kissed and many more 1999 classics. So make sure to check out The Rewatchables 1999 on Luminary. David, this week the New York Giants announced that longtime starter and New York sports legend Eli Manning will be riding the bench in favor of rookie Daniel Jones. <laughs> what I want to know is, even if you know nothing about sports, isn't this being covered like a regime change comparable to the American presidency within the New York tabloids? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not like Eli, uh, Eli, Eli's been with us for so long that he just seems like the quintessential New York quarterback. But there is, I mean, he, you know, he's a Southern boy too. So I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, but may, is it, maybe it's just that, that this New York quarterbacking is just like the, 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 the blank canvas for like the, the perfect New York story, right? It's like you get off the bus, like Axl Rose, the beginning of the Welcome to the Jungle video with like your suitcase <laughs> and your tousled hair. And you're just like woefully ill-equipped for what's about to happen to you. Like, there's no way this is going to go well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that the narr- the whole story for the New York Giants for Dan- was Dan- from the moment he was drafted it was Daniel Jones, like small kid in the big small city kid coming to coming to New York and and uh, and oh, small yeah. town kid. And and now now this is front and center. This is what we care about. I mean, it's like every picture of him. And I know this is a, from the art director's chair. Every every photo that I come across of him is sort of more unintentionally funny than the last. When they announced that he was ta- when he was going to be starting on ESPN, I was watching live, and the graphic at the bottom of the screen had the had headshots of Eli and Daniel Jones side by side. Eli's was just the standard, completely well, the completely centered, head on, perfect headshot, and Daniel Jones seemed to be. It's almost like he started laughing at the last second when they were taking his ID photo and his head went like a quarter of the way. He like tipped it off camera. He's like grinning and not in the frame, which seems like the easiest thing to fix, except that it's just Daniel Jones. It's totally fine. Um, it's a bit, this is huge news. It's huge news. There's, n- there's, never been, there's never been somebody like Daniel Jones and there's really no... I, there's no way this story can really go except for him becoming the best quarterback in NFL history. That's <laughs> how so it better go. We are the <laughs> Jeff Hostetler of Media Podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots of stuff to get to today. We'll talk about the week the media decided Elizabeth Warren is going to win the Democratic nomination. We'll talk about an intriguing and mysterious Washington Post Trump scoop, the local news from Anaheim, how to cover a regime change of NFL quarterbacks, plus listener mail and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I think we need to begin with the story about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh that appeared in the New York Times, which then seems to have lit itself on fire in about three different ways. The story is interesting because it tells us something not only about how newspapers work, but just how complicated these stories are to report. And as it turns out, tweet 
the piece by Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly originally appeared in the September 15th Sunday review section of the Times. It was actually an excerpt from their new book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. We read during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings that when, when he was a freshman at Yale, he'd been accused of thrusting his penis into the face of a fellow student named Deborah Ramirez. Well, on Sunday, Kelly and Pogrebin reported, quote, at least seven people, including Ms. Ramirez's mother, heard about the Yale incident long before Mr. Kavanaugh was a federal judge. Two of those people were classmates who learned of it just days after the party occurred, suggesting that it was discussed among students at the time. So that was revelation number one, that this story was more corroboratable, corroborable than we might have thought during Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. Moreover, Kelly and Pogrebin continue, we also uncovered a previously unreported story about Mr. Kavanaugh in his freshman year that echoes Ms. Ramirez's allegation. A classmate, Max Steyer, saw Mr. Kavanaugh with his pants down at a different drunken dorm party where friends pushed his penis into the hands of a female student, etc., etc. So, that appeared in the New York Times on Sunday. It is important to remember, David, that the initial backlash or at least raised eyebrows about this story were from the left rather than the right. Over at Slate, Tom Skoka wrote a news lead that just sort of brought the salient facts from the piece to the top. And then there was this problematic tweet, uh, which the Times used to peddle the story. The tweet read, Having a penis thrust in your face at a drunken dorm party may seem like harmless fun, but when Brett Kavanaugh did it to her, Deborah Ramirez says it confirmed that she didn't belong at Yale in the first place. So that was the first way the Times under, un, undermined its own scoop. What was your reaction when you first saw that tweet making the rounds? <laughs> Yeah, you always tee me up with something real special every time. <laughs> well, uh, no, no, I think that's a good. I mean, it is a. It's a good place. To, I mean, I, I should say just like taking a, a step backwards that like I encountered the sort of hidden news. I mean, uh, people tweeting about the revelations in the story before I re- encountered the indignation about the lack of about the Times headlining and 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 you know forward face uh, presentation of the story. Me too. Um, so when I realized. So it, it, I kind of had to back into the controversy, and 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 when I did, it was I don't I mean <clears throat> maybe shouldn't be I shouldn't use the word shocking, just you know, in something that that could be sort of a mechanical error, but it it did seem pretty shocking. The tweet itself, uh, like I said, kind of re- having to reverse engineer the controversy a little bit. The tweet itself seemed like utterly unbelievable. Right. I mean, like, try like I, like, I, I think I, I, I mean, I literally took it as a joke um, because it not, not, not that someone was tweeting, not the New York Times was tweeting in jest that like I was not being presented with an act with the, with the actual tweet from the Times. That was my, that was my assumption because it's just so off base. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess, I, I guess you understand how someone got to that tweet. Um, yes. Just the sort of abundance of caution gone completely awry. But I, but um, but it's really it's not one that you read and you're like, well, I see what they were trying to do. It takes some like work to get it, any kind of like logical progression there. Did you think as I did as stuck up journalists that my initial 
you know, sort of move was to blame the social media person that, oh, you know, this is a case where you have some nailed down serious reporting and somebody on social media, whoever on social media for the times has decided to, to sort of jolly this thing up a little bit and just tonally it went to totally the wrong place. I, I feel bad about thinking that in any case because social media people don't deserve that, but I feel really bad because it turns out that Robin Pogrebin, one of the authors wrote the tweet herself. She wrote it. Um, the same person who was, you know, doing all this, all this, you know, reporting for her book. Here's how Pogrebin explained her thinking on The View. Um, what happens at the Times is, you know, the reporters are asked to draft tweets. We also ask, asked to draft suggested headlines. They don't always get used. They don't always get sent out. They often don't. I drafted this with this in mind to have actually the opposite effect, mm-hmm. okay. which is to anticipate those who would say, a guy pulling down his pants at a party when they're drunk is, you know, on the spectrum of sexual misconduct. It's not sexual assault. It's not rape. Uh-huh. What's the big deal? And to try to put in context Deborah Ramirez's experience uh-huh. and to say, actually, it was a big deal mm-hmm. and that this can be quite meaningful, depending on where you come from. You know, yeah. maybe for yeah. me, a New Yorker, I would have said, get that out of my face. You know, she was coming from a very sheltered Catholic upbringing in a lower income um, kind of community, and she was a person of color, and she felt like maybe she didn't deserve to be at Yale in the first place. And so having that happen and have people laugh at her and target her Mm -hmm. was actually hugely meaningful and made an impact on her life for the rest of her life. So for those who minimize it and dismiss it, um, I was trying to help them understand that it had the opposite effect, and it seemed to undermine her experience. So she's wow. trying in that tweet, yeah, so she's trying that tweet to anticipate the objections, anticipate somebody who says, really, what's the big deal about this? And I I guess, and then, but, you know, of course, as we've learned one million times, when you try to do that on Twitter, it doesn't exactly come through. No, and in defense of the blame the social media team um, argument... I mean, it's just sort of like it's like talking about how the writers don't put their own headlines on the story. I mean, in this case, obviously they did, but and sometimes it's, it's not, I mean, often I feel like that is a useful thing to do. It's not to blame the social media team or to blame the headline writers specifically so much as it is just like to to separate that that part of the conversation out. So we're not arguing over definitions and terms for forty five minutes, you know. But in this case, it's actually a really salient uh, critique because, like you said, the writer wrote it herself, and and. Uh, you know, again, uh, one can see where one, uh, you know, how one could get to, <laughs> could get to that tweet, but or, or could, could could get to that argument. But you're right; it's it's just it's not that nuance is hard on Twitter. It's just like that's that line of conversation is completely inappropriate for Twitter. The tweet, as it turned out, was the least of the Times's problems <laughs> because by Sunday, Kelly and Pogerman's article was appended with this. An earlier version of this article, dot, 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 did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh pushed his penis into the hands of a female student at a drunken dorm party. The book reports the female student declined to be interviewed and friends say that she does not recall the incident. So the allegation got into the excerpt, but the salient fact that the alleged victim does not remember it according to friends anyway, which is in the book, which is in the book, did not get into the excerpt. Mm-hmm. Now, 
You might ask, wait a second, how did that fact drop out of the article? Let's listen to more of Pogrebin on The View. But you are the authors of the book. Did you just... Miss oh, it. it's in the book. It's in the book. And we no, I miss it in, in the New York and Times we first, and we opinion piece. And we first had it in the piece. And so it's about an editing process, which is iterative. It has a lot of different drafts. And, you know, I think actually the way it happened was the editors being concerned about naming her because mm-hmm. the Times has a tradition of not naming the v- victims and really has to deliberate whether or not to do that. In that sentence that had her name, it also yeah. had that she doesn't remember it. They took out the whole sentence. And in, in removing her name in order to kind of protect her and make sure pe- we weren't sort of sending people to her door, yeah. we also took out um, the fact that she didn't remember it. Did you- so again, when you hear the full explanation, I guess you can kind of understand in a way how you got there, right? You're going back and forth with these drafts and things are coming in and you're trying to balance so many things like the victims, the alleged victim, excuse me, right to privacy, right to not having her name in there and all these things with, you know, at the same time, which shows. And by the way, this goes back to the conversation we had earlier this week about Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's stories about Harvey Weinstein. These stories are fucking hard and they're hard to report and they're hard to edit and they're hard to get uh, into print in airtight form. But all that said, it's got to get in the story. It has to get in the story. And, you know, this is this is the job of the editor and the writer is to make sure a fact like that doesn't drop out even under, you know, the usual heated, crazy circumstances of newspaper editing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. I think of, of all of the errors, I mean, maybe this is just you're right. Maybe we're, I'm just in too close to be, to have a good perspective on this, but this is the thing that despite how galling it is, this is the part that I'm most sympathetic to maybe because of how galling it is, you know, because, um, you know, all of us in the business have been there on deadline in the weeds, having, just making an error. I mean, an error like this just presents itself or, or, you know, maybe you just assume that then someone in the ne- the ne- the the next desk over, it's their job to catch it. So you're just going to concentrate on the one thing you're working on, whatever it is. But one would think, one would hope that something that is integral to the story, I mean, so integral to the story and specifically to the news that the story is breaking, um, would not be overlooked. Now, maybe the problem, um, maybe this brings us to the next point, is that the Times also seemed a little bit blissfully unaware that they were breaking news in this piece. Or at least they didn't feel like that was the thrust of, of the piece. No pun intended. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think, there's, I think there's a couple of interlocking problems here. One is the trickiness of a book excerpt where mm-hmm. really if you look what's in this story, you would say, geez, what's, what's, what's important here, this, there's an interesting portrait of Deborah Ramirez here and what her life was like at Yale. But really, it seems like you're trying to make the, you're trying to give a, readers a flavor of the book. Oh, she was in this strange world. There's all this drinking. There's all this sexuality that she's not used to. Whereas what's maybe more important than that in the kind of immediate newspaper is the news. So you're trying to balance you know, instead of like two lines, here's what we learned. You're trying to kind of encase it in this portrait, which maybe would make readers more interested in buying the book. Um, that's tension. Number one. I think the second one is if they, if we, if the New York times editors looked at that second, the second piece of the story. Okay. Somebody has a memory of Brett Kavanaugh doing this, but the 
alleged victim does not remember it. Okay. Does that make the paper at all? Or would that just have been taken out completely? I don't know the answer to that. To me, it's hard to believe it would have been in the paper. Well, I mean, there was all there. There were stories that the authors pitched the news desk on this stuff first, and that it was, and that it was more or less rejected, right? I mean, that's the reason why it ends up in the Sunday Review. I, yeah, I mean, I can understand the argument from the editorial side that whatever this is might have felt like a piece of a of a bigger story, and not, you know, not not something to to not the nail to hang the whole thing on, hang a hang a whole new report on. But it does feel like it's less, I don't know, again, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It it feels like it's less an issue of editorial discernment and more an issue of being stung by the reportage of the previous round, the round of Kavanaugh stories or the reaction to the way they reported the previous round, that, you know, the media reported the previous round of Kavanaugh stories, right? That they're more concerned with the perception that they would be witch hunting than they are about act the actual news that might be worth breaking. Right. Cause it's a, cause it's a tough one because it's, there is this kind of weird sense in political world that once somebody is confirmed that everybody should just move on, you mm-hmm. know, minus something. Oh, didn't we litigate? You know, that's of course what Republicans uh, would say and have said about this. So you're right. There is this kind of weird political tension to it, but it's, it's totally normal that, it, you know, we know those as, and we talked about it here that those confirmation hearings were, you know, very quick. Those investigations were not always as wide ranging as they should have been. So it seems totally normal that two authors who went back and spent months and months would turn up new and interesting material. Of course. yeah. Um, so, you know, that just seems to me. I can, and of course, this all immediately then sort of passes into. And again, this is before before this you know addendum comes onto the story this passes right into the 2020 campaign uh, elizabeth warren tweeted on sunday last year kavanaugh nomination was rammed through the senate without a thorough examination of the allegations against him confirmation is not exoneration and these newest revelations are disturbing like the man who appointed him kavanaugh should be impeached uh julian castro it's more clear than ever that brett kavanaugh lied under oath he should be impeached and Congress should review the failure of the Department of Justice to properly investigate the matter. So there was that. And then uh, I love this summary from the Washington Post, Paul Kane. He says the Kavanaugh saga has evolved in a familiar refrain. Seemingly credible accusations get made. Democrats pounce and demand investigations. Republicans grow quiet until some other allegation emerges that appears to go too far. Then Republicans go into full umbrage mode pushing Democrats back until the nominee is confirmed or in this week's case, until Democrats change the subject. We have had that happen like three times with the Kavanaugh saga. Yeah. And here we are again. And, you know, I don't know if you watched any of the Mitch McConnell, you know, victory dance about this. The quote that stuck out to me was I'm distressed by the declining journalistic principles so much on display. Yes. I'm sure you're distressed by that Senator, but (laughs) You know, doing this weird sort of victory celebration of aha, aha, we got him. Even though, again, all this information was in the book. And I guess that's what makes this, you know, adventure, whatever you want to call it, catastrophe, adventure, ridiculousness, so insane is that stuff was in the book. But now Republicans can point to a New York Times excerpt and say, see, the paper's out to get us. See, they're not telling you the full story. Well, it's not even. 
It's not even that. It's it's the it's it's the it's the the, the larger scale obfuscation that now you can just say whenever someone says a true fact that was that that was reported out and and sort and you know and backed up in triplicate by the book, someone can just say no, that story was fake. Here's the remember the New York Times lied about it. Yeah, remember they it's, retracted it or they they, yeah. they corrected it or something like yeah. that. You were texting me about the now obligatory paragraph that appears whenever anybody writes a story about New York Times <laughs> scandals. What was this it? Is, Where did you see it? This is this this is the sort of thing that happens when like a musician will get a will get charged with like three or four different crimes in an eighteen month span that aren't necessarily related and don't really build up. I don't really amount to one <laughs> one narrative, but they have to put in the paragraph at the end that's like, by the way, uh, you know, I mean, not even by the way, it, it's a, it's a it's an assumed by the way, or it's just like whatever. Chris Almeida was charged with two counts of uh, of uh, leaving the scene of an accident, as well as uh, thieving, uh, st- stealing uh, stuffed teddy bears from the toy store. Is and and that was after he, uh, you know, left a dirty phone call on his friend's answering machine, and then, but none of these things have to do with one another. But they're you know, they, it's just the explanation that a lot of stuff is going on. The New York Times has officially reached that status because in reporting about this in this exact story, the Washington Post. Uh, had reported at the very end of the and <laughs> the very end of a, a lengthy just breakdown of this whole Kavanaugh thing said in recent months the Times has faced scrutiny over editorial decisions and its staffers social media interactions the newspaper amended a front page headline about Trump <laughs> following mass outcry following mass outcry in August that same month the Times Washington editor Jonathan Wiseman was demoted after sparking controversy with tweets that were denounced as racist and columnist Brett Stevens was widely panned <laughs> for his role in the now infamous bed bug exchange. <laughs> <laughs> what it's, is that? Bill always talks about the Tyson zone, you know, when somebody enters it. The New yeah. York Times has entered the New Republic zone. Remember the New Republic <laughs> oh, was the king is. of the Yeah, it's the like everybody the obligatory I, paragraph. Yeah. The more and the have, more that goes wrong, the more obli- ob- obliged you are to to like reach further into the past, right? Like as soon as as soon as the fabulism returns, then it's like, oh yeah, remember Stephen Glass? That was a thing too, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause they were in the zone for a while to be like Leon Weaseltier did did something horrible and Chris Hughes was a feckless owner. And remember that Stephen Glass guy who made up all that stuff? You're like, wait, these are these are like three different, completely different things. But it's the um, when you've hit you've hit a rough patch as a publication when you reach the obligatory paragraph stage. I think that's what we need to name it here: the, obli- the obligatory paragraph of shame. Congratulations, <laughs> New York Times, you have now qualified. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received quality tweet this week from the onion. David, uh, they put up a picture of a modern open plan office where everyone's working side by side and they had the headline working in general vicinity for eight hours a day misinterpreted as friendship. (laughs) Uh, It does not apply at all to uh, the ringers uh, New York office. Trust me. It was an overworked Twitter joke to tag your coworkers uh, with that tweet. That is thanks to Matt Sinovich. It's probably a good time to mention that I uh, my desk is next to Kevin Clark's in the uh, Ringer LA headquarters. Nah, I kid. I kid. Uh, always like stories like this one. The new head of talent relations at Fox is named Lisa Simpson. <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
Lisa Simpson. Uh, Braden Orr tweets, Bowser runs Nintendo. Lisa Simpson is going to run Fox. This is the strangest timeline. Do you remember the the, the story of the Doug, Doug Bowser was running oh, Nintendo? Yeah. I think we had that many, many months ago. Then Doug Bowser himself, president of Nintendo of America, tweeted out the announcement of Simpson's appointment with a comment. Seems like a natural fit to me. Anyway, <laughs> unbelievable. Thanks to Pete McHugh and Scott Tobias, who we forgot to credit on one last week. Sorry about that, Scott. And speaking of 90s bands, because David, when are we not speaking of 90s bands? Tom DeLong, the vocalist and guitarist of Blink-182, is filing for divorce from his wife, Jennifer. He's been married since 2001. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, I guess they couldn't stay together for the kids. Thanks to Stephen Oberlander for that one. Yeah, see, it's total silence from Chris. We, we're, we're, we're too early in the 90s. Uh, but, but hopefully some chuckles from other ones out there. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And I have down here first, uh, this was the week Elizabeth Warren became president, or at least the Democratic nominee. Man. Because when because when we look back at election 2020, let this be known that this was the week the media reached a kind of rough consensus on who's going to win the nomination. On Wednesday, Matt Drudge tweeted a photo of Warren speaking under New York's Washington Square Arch and said, it's Elizabeth Warren's nomination to lose. Over at New York Magazine, Jonathan Chait writes, Elizabeth Warren is not leading the polls yet, but she is on a trajectory to win the Democratic presidential nomination. Number cruncher Steve Kornacki, everybody's favorite number cruncher, tweets, I think the most significant development in recent polling is that Warren, while still running far behind Biden, now clearly has a pulse with black voters. There's kind of an interesting why now question here at that we could cite poll numbers. We could cite kind of what happened in that last debate, especially probably Biden's performance in that last debate. Mm-hmm. But I, to me, I think the biggest imperative here that covers just about everybody, including us, is we all want to know as soon as humanly possible, or I should say we all want to declare as soon as humanly possible who's going to win the nomination. That's the thing. You know, we do this with with football, right? You hear Bill and Sal do this all the time. Who's the favorite to win the Super Bowl? Who can we rule out of the playoffs right now? This mm-hmm. is like such a natural human emotion. And I think I even asked you this on Tuesday, like who's going to win the nomination? That's what we want to know immediately because we want to construct. Here's a word I hate a storyline or narrative or whatever you want to call it that puts everything in order for us. And I think. I think reporters have been itching to do this because they don't believe Biden is actually going to win this thing. So now I feel this was the week, whether it's polls, whether it's a debate, whatever it is, that they decided that Elizabeth Warren is probably going to win the nomination. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's operating on a couple of different levels. Um, I mean, Jonathan Chait's piece that that you mentioned was... um, Declarative. I mean, it was it, he was making the case that that Elizabeth Warren is probably going to win the nomination. I, I think the homepage headline writers were even more uh, definitive when they they subtitled it, uh, the piece an assessment of the now likely nominee. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of other content on the on on near you know on the site that's kind of piggybacking off that piece. There's you know one of the the number one piece on the site right now is how electable is Elizabeth Warren anyway? 
Oh no, that's that's the same piece. Sorry, there's a different. Uh, <laughs> sorry, let me take that again. There's another piece uh, piggybacking off that one that says no one knows whether Warner Sanders is in second place. You know, you know, it's a it's a bunch of kind of reiterative content, and that's that's the way these things go. But I think that 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 sort of piggybacking is is uh, helps explain you know in a from a from a different perspective, a bigger perspective, what's going on. I mean, as soon as somebody calls the race. Just like if this were election night, everybody else is racing to call is is, is racing to get in too, right? So as soon as somebody yep. starts talking about Elizabeth Warren in with any kind of definitive uh, prediction or predictive terms, then you know every other opinion writer, every other pollster, whoever who had the, who had an inkling of a, a piece they wanted to write next week is like rushing that piece out um, to get to get in on the mm-hmm. conversation. But, but There's the, a multiplier uh, effect, yes. Yeah, and, and the narrative argument that you're talking about is disheartening, but I think really real. I mean, I think in so much as there's any validity to the to the notion that the media was in the bag for Biden, you know, up until, well, I mean, now or wh- whatever it was, I think that if in so much as that's true, it probably has everything to do with that kind of desire for a, for a definitive narrative, right? That you want, that he, he enters as the front runner and the story... Is, is simplest to tell with him cruising to victory, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, we I said this on the show on Monday or was it last week that I said that I think we we don't know who's going to win, but I think it's going to seem like a given in retrospect that it's either going to be Biden or it's going to be Elizabeth Warren um, in her inevitable you know defeat of Biden uh, or conquering of Biden. And and I and I and I'm not saying that I encourage all, everyone to write this story. I mean, God knows, but but I think it it was get it was at the point where it was getting a little bit obvious. Now, I think that it's natural for us to want this. I think you're right. I think for for us to be looking for this narrative and then to be you know, it's it's in our nature now to be more definitive than ever about these things, at least in headlines or in pitches or in, in everything else. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, but but I think that the difficulty is, no matter how entrenched the polling numbers seem, no matter how it see how impossible it seems for someone else to 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 jump out of the pack, it's not in any of the candidates' best interest to help that narrative along, right? I mean, as much as we like to, to if you want to talk, go back to the Bill and Sal point of reference. As much as we wanted to talk about. Castro versus Beto in the first debate being a loser leaves town match. Well, they're both in it two debates later, right? I mean, neither of them is going anywhere. And um, and and I think that you know, well, I mean, we can. I think we most people would say with some confidence that one of the biggest things that Trump had on his side four years ago was the was the inability of the rest of the of the field to gather around one candidate, right? Or the or the the opposition to gather around one candidate, and that was because. It was in no one's best interest, personal interest, to drop out of the campaign. Um, so, True. really, any anything could happen. Anything could happen. But it is interesting. <laughs> that's where we're gonna. That's where we're getting to the end of this. But, but in conclusion, anything could happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. Now, talk about narrative. No, I, I I agree with everything you said. I I think the one thing about Biden, I'd say, is I think I think that the simplest story is actually probably just one click of the dial further. It's that Biden is the front runner and he's going to lose, but he's going to lose. Right. Mm -hmm. You're adding just a little drama to that. And if you read Ryan Liz's Politico thing on Biden, a lot of what his advisors think the media is doing is how to, you know, the fall from grace of the front runner of Barack Obama's vice president is a great story to write. So they have been they have been waiting for that story to happen. 
Now that that's just natural. Now, I guess the other question I had, and we're going way down the meta rabbit hole here is if Elizabeth Warren becomes kind of the de facto media front runner, how does the coverage of her change? Because she's been in this strange position where she started the campaign. She mishandled the native American stuff. It, it was, it looked terrible. She looked completely, her campaign looked completely dead in the water. She was allowed to kind of come along as on this comeback trail, right? That was a good story for the media also to write. Elizabeth Warren seemed to have bottomed out. Now she's taking 70,000 selfies. She has a plan for everything. She's quietly just, you know, hitting the American people over the head with policy until they can't take it anymore. And now she's coming back. But does that change now? Remember, it's still a long time to go before anybody actually caucuses three months. So does that change if she is the prohibitive front runner in the race? And I think it probably will in some way. And that's another interesting part of this. So, yeah, this is the next point. I mean, this is the, 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 the logical like next question in the argument that I was just making. I don't think that I think that the, the one thing that I mean, the, the reason why Beto, I mean, uh, the reason why Beto's campaign was sort of, you know, taking critical hits before it could even get a footing was because of the sort of presumption inherent in the way that that you know the 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 rollout of the campaign was just seemed like they they were being presumptive right there's a lot of the and 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 the, a lot of the the knocks that Joe Biden has taken is the oh is the 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 perception of presumption that that he was mm-hmm. you know um determined to i mean that that, that he was the obvious choice i think that <clears throat> you can look at you can see a lot of that in Hillary's campaign 4 years ago i think that that's Absolutely. The, there's nothing that voters at this point hate more at least especially like the Hyper attentive class of voters, be that on Twitter or primary voters or whatever else, is the the is the the presumption that like you're going to vote for them no matter what. We want, uh, you know, volition means something different now than it has in the past, and it's a uh, it's there there is the voters. I think to to take it's not it's to take anything for granted. I think is a, is a slap in the face to anybody with a vote. I mean that's the way it's perceived, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. So. Elizabeth Warren has got to continue fighting this kind of running this sort of uh, this insurgent campaign, no matter what her poll numbers say, you know, no matter how inevitable she may her campaign may feel that she is. um, She's got to run this. She's got to run it like she's like she's an underdog. And frankly. She might be aided by the fact that she doesn't match up necessarily as well against Trump as Biden or some of the other candidates. So she might be aided by the fact that Trump in a lot of quarters seems um insurmountable right i mean she she might be the, she might be in fact better positioned to keep running an insurgent campaign than anybody else on, up there on the stage who has even you know a, a, a you know shot in the dark of getting the nomination but we'll see i guess yeah i mean the the sort of Bi- the biden thing is funny because i also think that this will change Biden. so there so there's the warren part that you just mentioned then there's the biden part biden is going to probably change tactics if his if he's not running well and and by the way don't think the media doesn't want to write the story how uncle joe got his groove back and you know he he was tongue-tied he wasn't campaigning he wasn't giving interviews now he's in don't give a fuck uncle joe mode and he's going to do that they would love to write that story too Mm -hmm. because that would be that would be a great story and i was always i was kind of i i understand like the whole idea of narrative and and the you know the way it was practiced in the evil awful mark halpern way is it can be so dumb with politics but mostly it's just people trying to make sense of the state of the race and 
there are good reasons to it, right? Money goes to to people who are who are doing well, resources, endorsements, all that kind of stuff. But it's just journalists trying to make sense of what they're covering at its heart, you know. And they're trying to figure out like who who what is going on. I'm out there reporting. I'm observing. I'm talking to people. What's going on? What is the state of the race? And it just seems at some level like a completely natural thing for people to be doing. And again, it could be abused and it can be taken to just, you know, ludicrous Washington extremes where you're, you know, trying to trying to, you know, sort of invent uh, a state of play for every every little thing that happens and trying to do game theory and all the stupid stuff. But it is interesting. And I like I said, I feel I find it very interesting that everyone has settled on this week as the week Warren got in the driver's seat. Should we spend a second, David, talking about this Trump scoop in the Washington Post? Oh, God. Yeah. This will probably be slightly outdated by the time you listen to this. So so remember that we're coming in early. This piece, which is by Greg Miller, Ellen Nakashima, and Shane Harris, appeared yesterday afternoon, which is Wednesday. I'll read you the first two paragraphs because that's about all we know at this point. The whistleblower camp complaint that has triggered a tense showdown between the U.S. intelligence community and Congress involves President Trump's communications with a foreign leader, according to two former U.S. officials familiar with the matter. Trump's interaction with the foreign leader included a promise that was regarded as so troubling that it prompted an official in the U.S. intelligence community to file a formal whistleblower complaint with the inspector general for the intelligence community, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And I almost want to just for us to just sit here for 30 seconds and appreciate this because it feels like we're observing a a story in in the larval stage. This is news. I'm not I'm not shitting on 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 the Washington Post piece at all. But it's just like this this is the news still in the cocoon. Like what is this going to be? And and when when I tell you Trump made a promise to a foreign leader that was quote unquote so troubling <laughs> it inspired a whistleblower complaint. It it feels like, you know, where we were at various stages of Russiagate or Mullergate, where it, it seems like, wow, this could be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be something relatively stupid about trade or something like that. But don't you feel we're just, don't you feel that this moment is so amazing? Because this is where everybody's imagination, and, it's, and by that I especially mean liberal Twitter's imagination, runs absolutely wild. Yeah, it's not just liberal Twitter. I mean, it's everybody. I mean, listen, if you, I was watching uh, the news this morning on MSNBC, they were they were just going on and on about it, and it took me uh, probably the better part of an hour to realize that I had I wasn't just missing the meat of the story. That the meat of the story was actually just ephemeral, right? I mean, it it could, like you said, it it's could actually it could actually amount to something really significant. <laughs> certainly, certainly absent. How many ab- times have we said that about Trump? Well, by that's the way. what I was going to say. Ahead. In another administ- in another administration, in another era, and I don't even mean this as, as a direct reflection on on the Trump White House. In another era, I think that we would almost assume that that they were discussing that the, that the media was discussing something like this in such grave terms because they maybe knew more than they could say out loud. Um, but that has not always been the case um, over the past couple years. Um, or at least it's not borne out to to be provable that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's happened time and time again. It, uh, it's it's a it's it's a little bit it's a little bit befuddling. Presumably, we'll get some clarity on this uh, 
uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, like you said, maybe by the time this podcast goes up, because you know Congress is involved, and this is now a you know a showdown with people who uh, may be able to get their hands on this one way or the other, whether or not it becomes a public record or or, or whatever else. Um, but it is it is it is very strange, and again. It has a little bit of the piggybacking that we d- discussed in the last segment because everybody's got to cover it with the same sort of volume that the competitors, the competition's covering it, right? And then even and then beyond that, there's all the supplemental stuff. I just I just googled to see if there's any any new news, and the first thing that came up was an NBC News report that annual complaints to the Watchdog Hotline have more than doubled in, in the Trump presidency, which is <laughs> which is also interesting and also troubling. But like this is just news based on the same. Uh, I con- notion of a story that may or you know that we don't really understand what it is yet. Um, there's a like a running live blog on CNN that doesn't seem to give that much information, except for really we're talking about TikToking the machinations going going on between Congress and the White House, and noting all the people, listing all the people who Trump has spoken to in recent months. But we don't even know the time frame of this. The whole thing is so strange. Um, yeah, I do like that it, last part where they're where they're trying to isolate on the foreign leaders. This is in the post piece that he's had contact with five foreign leaders in the last five weeks or the previous the yeah. five weeks previous to the complaint, which is filed August 12th. And they are Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un. OK, both those seem like uh, have a lot of potential. The prime minister of Pakistan. Hmm, sure. Uh, the emir of Qatar. OK, uh, the prime minister of the Netherlands. That's number five. Now, who wants to take the prime minister of the Netherlands in, in the in the pool? And what kind of odds <laughs> we like, like one million to one? Yeah. Come on. Come on. And I, I may be wrong by the time you hear this, but I kind of think it's not going to be the prime minister of the Netherlands. That's not going to be the thing that really got the uh, the complaint filed. Anyway, go ahead. You were saying. No, and I, and I just I, I think it's it's worth saying that. I mean, listen, I don't I'm not proud to be, you know, an American in an era where where uh, where the president can literally profit off the, the presidency where, you know, there's, I mean, all the accusations, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, at, but at the same time, we've seen what the public reaction is to, um, you know, lobbyists hanging out at the Trump hotel. And it's just sort of, it, you know, that, that sort of, those sort of news stories seem to land with a thud time after time. If this was Trump saying to, you know, Ukrainian president Zelensky, like, like the next time you're here, you can stay for free at Mar-a-Lago. And someone in the White House cl- clutching their pearls over that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a serious violation that someone should look into. But I'm not sure that that's like a 48-hour stop the presses news story, right? Like, I mean, this isn't that that's not going to bring down the Trump presidency. And I'm not exactly sure what the stakes are here in, a, in an era where it, I don't know what would actually bring down the Trump presidency. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, we just we have to sort of measure our our expectations and and withhold our outrage until we have some concept of what we're actually talking about. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> if you work for local, if you work for cable news, that's going to yeah, be fun. That's true. Uh, I almost said local news because that's the next item on the agenda. Fun with local news. This is from Sarah Welch, a reporter at KTLA out here in Southern California. Yeah. And I feel real, I feel almost bad doing this because David, you and I uh, misspeak all the time. As any listener of this podcast knows, Lord knows how many times we've done it today, but, but this is funny. Uh, Listen to Welch on a recent report doing some journalistic due diligence on an unfortunate story from Anaheim, California. 
We tried to reach out to the man who died in this pursuit. Uh, they were unavailable for comment. You know what they say, David, always make the extra call, even if your subject is <laughs> deceased. Mm. I don't have a ton to say about this, but but I will ask you this. What was the exact year that people stopped watching local news, like actually watching it and just started strip mining it for stories like this or the <laughs> one about the people seeing the leprechaun in the tree? I mean, what was what was the point? It just became comedic fodder. I don't know. You I mean, yes. Uh, no, but I can probably, man. If I if I actually like sat down and thought about it, I could probably figure out the point in my life where the local news, like, basically only started existing after Sunday night football games. Like, it's o- it's only when <laughs> only when a a seasonal sporting event leads directly into the evening news, like from the studio show straight to like the sports segment on the local news, and then all of a sudden they're talking about. You know, murder numbers going up in the local in some local neighborhood, or some you know d- terrible house break in. I mean, it all it's it's just it's all outrage, and and really any any moment of the local news is probably worth the effort to strip mine. I mean, or, or could stand on its own as a meme. Not maybe not. It doesn't go up to this level, rise to this level. But um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. It's it does seem like a totally different a totally different way we consume. Uh, you know, the 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 news at ten or at eleven or whatever it is. Yeah, the the phrase you always hear after the uh, big sporting event is stay tuned for your late local news, I believe. Uh, The time I kind of accidentally run into it is when I'm waiting for a big event to start Mm -hmm. as opposed to just stop, which is kind of a funny one. And I think it was the um, must have been one of the debates we were covering the other day. And I, I sort of waited for it and it turned out to be. The last story on the local news leading into the major Democratic debate was a, about a sea otter being nursed back to health. <laughs> it was the perfect one. And I also just found on Twitter, the Chiron was rescued sea otter pup putting on weight. And it's one of those where the, the anchors can kind of go, oh, and then stay tuned, everybody. Democratic debates coming up. And then, you know, <laughs> on to the business of the nation. I love it. Uh, David, in the world of sports. Big news this week. Uh, On Tuesday, the New York Giants, the New York football Giants, announced that Eli Manning, their longtime starting quarterback, two-time Super Bowl winner, was being benched in favor of Daniel Jones, the oft-ridiculed rookie who was drafted out of Duke with the sixth pick in this year's draft. The New York Post, of course, has been on top of this since April when they ran with a game of Jones inside the mind of the heir to Eli's QB throne on the cover <laughs> of their post-draft sports section. Uh, you, you will not be shocked to see the photo that comes with that. On the cover of Wednesday's New York Post, they went with the fall of man. That was the headline, the fall of man. Uh, anyway, these events allowed everybody to get a bunch of bad takes off over on ESPN on Get Up, Paul Feinbaum used the opportunity to talk about how Eli Manning handled the past few years with, quote, class, uh, I guess because he got sacked all the time. Feinbaum then awkwardly segued into talking about how Cam Newton is not like Eli Manning and has, quote, never cared about anybody other than Cam Newton. Uh, over at Fox Sports on The Herd, Colin Coward said that Eli Manning would have been benched a long time ago if he'd been playing on the West Coast. Uh, Coward says, I'm from the West and I currently live in the West. But one of the things that always struck me when I moved to the Northeast, in brackets, 
You would never have a Fenway Park out west. We would just blow it up and start over. The east is about a two, about 200-year-old churches and 100-year-old baseball stadiums and hierarchy and tradition, dot, dot, dot. In the west, we don't romanticize yesterday, dot, dot, dot. It doesn't matter what grandpa did or what your dad did. Um, Colin sort of going all Frederick Jackson Turner there on on how quarterbacks <laughs> are replaced in the, in the NFL. Anyway, Daniel Jones uh, set to make his first start Sunday against Tampa Bay. Surely the reaction to his debut on Sports Talk Radio and on ESPN will be calm and measured. Uh, I give you I give you great odds on that. <laughs> Lister Mail, David, we talked about the far side on Tuesday. Comic strip possibly coming back. We got this tweet from at E-L-D-M-C-M-N-O. If that spells anything, let me know. Uh, he says, what a miss. Is there any more appropriate medium for the return of the far side in 2019 than a newsletter? A daily comic in the newspaper returning in the form of a daily newsletter. Come on, guys. That's a layup. He's right. Uh, thanks to thanks to this lister for remembering our own content more than we do, because we, we talked about how the new the new sign of power in journalism is the newsletter. So is Gary Larson going to do it as a newsletter? Would that work? There is there a newsletter? Is there a comic strip newsletter? Yes, I guess. Yes, this, this, but, this falls under the category of like tech bros reinventing the city bus. But like, wouldn't that be great if you could just opt in, <laughs> opt into like your six favorite comic strips and have those ar- arrive in your inbox every morning? Anyway, my mother-in-law personally would be the first subscriber to that. So, so uh, <laughs> let's let's pitch that idea. In other news, when it was announced that Netflix had acquired the streaming rights to Seinfeld. Our pal Chris Sullentrop tweeted, duck and cover generational think pieces incoming. <laughs> and God, is he right? One of the yeah. great and most overworked gimmicks for such pieces, as Chris notes, is I never watched Seinfeld. Then I binged every episode. And here's what I found that that happens with everything. Right. Right before the end of Game of Thrones. I never seen Game of Thrones. So I watched it all last week. It's crazy. Let me tell you about it. That uh, that is going to happen with Seinfeld in like five minutes. Yeah, if it hasn't already. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's surprising how how many people of our of the generation of of Al, the Almeidas uh, have have not seen any episodes of Seinfeld. <laughs> but again, that's I have seen all of Seinfeld. Thank you very much. Okay, good. But that's it. But it's part of the cord cutting thing. We're like we not only do we watch it live, but we we experience it much more significantly in reruns, right? I mean, just like every day on multiple channels. And um, and yeah, if you if you if you were somehow oblivious to that, it would make sense that maybe you hadn't seen it at all. But that's one where it's just like, I don't know. This is definitely the old man in me coming out. But if there's something that's like culturally significant that I don't have any that that I have not seen any of that I don't have any take on at all, I don't think I would ever say that out loud. I would certainly never pitch a story that was just like, hey, let me bask in my own ignorance. But you know. Mm-hmm. It's a different era. Yeah, it's a different era. Michael Perot, another reader or listener, I should say, uh, tweets, Elizabeth Warren needs to win the nomination, then end the Afghanistan war. So Brian and David can discuss the following strain pun headline, Warren, comma, peace. Oh, man. Warren, peace. And that brings us, David, to your favorite segment. David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Did you, does, that, does that first okay. sigh count as your sigh? Oh, yeah. there we go. Thank you very much. Tuesday's uh, headline was Hail Fellows, Well Met. I actually want to go semi-retro today. Let me take you back to July 6th, 2007. 
The publication is New York Magazine, and the piece by Joe Hagan is about Katie Couric, who was then anchor of the CBS Evening News. You remember her embattled period as CBS News anchor. Uh, people were feeling very sorry for Katie Couric during this period, David, a kind of sadness that sitting in the Dan Rather Walter Cronkite chair was not going as well as it could. What was the New York Magazine strained pun headline? I'll give you this hint. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Wait, what do I? It's just Katie Couric and Shakespeare. Well, that's it's a let's say quoting Shakespeare. It's something. What is was Anchors Away Shakespeare? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare. Anchors Away. <laughs> I'm just. I feel like you left anchors out of that sentence in, 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 in a in a, um, in a uh, ostentatious you're over, way. You're overthinking. All right, overthinking. Hey, Katie Couric. Uh, Couric. Couric. Um, to be can I lead you to Katie, can I lead you to Hamlet? Can, can uh, <laughs> I was about to try to make Katie or not Katie a thing. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> that's good. That's really good. That's not it, but that's really good. Uh, we can save that one for Kevin Durant. <laughs> KD or not KD? That's about his burner accounts, I think. The um, the, the let's. Uh, <laughs> What is it? Oh damn! Uh, this is not. I know what the answer is. It's not a good. It's, this is not a good pun. It's a funny pun. Is it alas, poor Korak? I knew her well, or something. Yeah, yeah alas, okay. poor Korak. Alas, poor Korak. I like it because you don't have to get the reference. It is no. It works. It, it works that way. I think that people. I think that the there's two different ways to pronounce her name, and that sort of messes up the punnage. But but that's it's funny. It's that's definitely funny. Alas, poor Korak. Yeah. Uh, this week's strain pun headline. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday, bright and early with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, man. David? Wait. Has never cared about anybody other than David. I don't know. This is definitely the old man in me coming out. It doesn't matter what Grandpa did. I'm not proud to be charged with two counts of uh, of uh, leaving the scene of an accident, as well as... Uh, I love it. I'm not proud to be stealing uh, stuffed teddy bears from the toy store. As in, and I love it. I'm not proud to be... This is uh, news. You know, I'm... left a dirty phone call on his friend's answering machine, and then... I love it. Reinventing the city bus. So dumb. It could actually amount to something really significant. Yes, I'm sure you're distressed. Here's a word I hate. David? Okay. Yeah.